Welcome to the Vegan Dharma Podcast. I am Laura Nadia, the Vegan Dharma Coach. You're about to hear from an amazing human, a story of how they embody their soul's purpose. Open your mind, your heart, and your soul to receive this message today. First, let's take three deep breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth. Breathe in through the nose, out through the mouth. Inhale, exhale, inhale, letting your belly get nice and big with air, and gently release. Now we're grounded and we're ready to invite our guest. Enjoy. I'd like to welcome to the Vegan Dharma podcast, Mike Stura from Skylands Animal Sanctuary and Rescue up in Wantage, New Jersey. He is the founder and the head chief of the whole sanctuary operation. So welcome, Mike. Hello, Laura. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm super excited to have you on. I thank you for taking a break from everything you're doing with the animals to come talk to us about everything that you're doing there and love to hear as well about the turkeys this time of year because we have Thanksgiving coming up and got my little hug turkeys shirt on right here. And seeing the turkeys at the sanctuary just brings me so much joy because you don't often get that opportunity to see personalities, especially in birds, because people don't tend to keep turkeys as pets but they do have personalities. Yeah, even when you do see them turkeys, you know, you see, especially like our broad-breasted whites, which are mostly, well, like butterball turkeys are and all. When you see them, oftentimes, you see them for five minutes or 10 minutes. They're just white turkey. They don't really distinguish themselves. But spend a few minutes and you get to see. We have our couple broad-breasted whites, our Diane and Robin. And Robin is like the most outgoing, sweetest boy. This is going to be his sixth Thanksgiving here with us. He was just a youngster when we got him. The first year we got going, that would have been his last year. You know, he's a character. He's a sweetheart. He wins people over when we do tours. People don't expect him to be so outgoing and so affectionate and so demanding of your attention. You know, when you're talking about other animals, he'll follow you around. He'll follow you on the tour and he'll talk to you. He's like, what about me, man? You're talking about them stupid cows. Here I am, handsome as can be. And Diane is fantastic. Diane's a real tough girl. She's a survivor. I got her. She had been attacked by a fox. And the one side of her face was really messed up. And she lost the use of her one eye. But other than that, you'd never know. She's a character. She's got a huge personality, too. They're great. I often think that turkeys are the most surprising of the animals on the farm, that people expect the least and sometimes get the most from the turkeys. They're very surprised by it. So many people fall in love with them every year, and it's nice. You know, Benjamin Franklin sought so much of the turkey that he wanted to be our national bird, not the eagle. Did you know that? True story. I, I didn't. Yeah, he thought so much of the turkey that he wanted to be our national bird. I guess the eagle's more majestic. These are tough. They're survivors. They're smart. And it's funny because people act like they're so stupid. If you ever speak to any hunters, they'll tell you that turkeys are some of the wiliest game to catch. Not that that's what I want to be talking to hunters about, but I've heard it many times in my life that they're not as easy prey as you think they are. Yeah. I mean, you try to go pet one and you can't touch them unless they want you to touch them. <laughs> and you can't get away from them if they want you to touch them. Yeah. You know, it's the opposite. <laughs> I like it sometimes we've done tours and people will sit down, you know, a hot summer day. They'll just sit down on the hill nearby and Robin will just come up and sit on their lap. And people are like, holy mackerel, he's a character. 
And they're not all the same. You know, we have four others that we got that are broad-breasted bronzes. Those so far have not shown the big personality yet. It'll come out, but it's Mm -hmm. probably because they're still a cohesive unit. They're friends with each other more. Right. They're beautiful too. They look more like a wild bird, more the same coloring as a wild bird, that bronze, beautiful, iridescent on their feathers and all that. But they're two, three times as big as a wild bird. Yeah. So you've got turkeys, you've got all types of birds, you've got goats, you've got cows, you've got pigs, you've got, what are all the other animals? The sheep? (laughs) The sheep. Yeah. So, you know, if anybody knows us, we're kind of cow centric around here. So we have a boatload of bovines ranging from massive down to little tiny babies. They run the gamut. And then we have goats and sheep and pigs and turkeys and chickens and ducks and geese and one peacock and three donkeys, three little awesome donkeys. I love them. Yeah, we got a bunch of kids now. You know, we just took in 180 roosters, fell off a truck. So we have them maniacs. They're doing really well, I have to say. So far, so good. Got my fingers crossed. They are doing okay. We gave them a really big, nice house and a really big area, and hopefully they're going to do okay. You know, somebody was just here yesterday. We had some volunteers yesterday, and he remarked about those roosters are beautiful. I said, yeah, they are. He goes, I never knew they were that good looking, like their faces, and there's just a lot to them, and there's bright colors on some of them. I said, yeah, people just don't get to know them. Those kids have a bad name, you know, roosters. You can't be friendly with a rooster, and they're mean. That's not the truth. <laughs> no, I like that boatload of bovines. Yeah, Skylands is definitely known for the cows mainly. And it all started with one cow, right? Can you tell the story of how Skylands came into action? Yeah, my boy right here, Jimmy. This little logo is from a photograph of Jimmy and I walking out of a dog pen. We're smart enough to crop me out of the picture, but that's Jimmy. That's actually from the photograph of Jimmy stepping his first steps out of a dog run. So back in the day, I didn't have my own land like this. I had a couple acres where our work trucks were and we had fenced in some of the woods and it was fantastic for a couple goats that we had taken and rescued and they were living there. It was great and they loved it and I loved having them there. But I used to rescue animals like crazy for other places. I'd rescue them to other sanctuaries and I would transport them for, from, you know, for sanctuaries and for possible adopters and things like that. I bought my own truck and trailer and stuff to do that. It was great. I loved doing it. And that was part of my contribution, you know, trying to help the places that were doing their best. I had rescued bulls and cows and kind of became known, I guess, for that. Right. And one day I got a call from a woman who said that she had been going to a plant nursery not far from her. And they had like a little petting zoo set up for this time of year coming up to Thanksgiving to lure people in to buy pumpkins and things like that. And they had rented animals that they were going to give back. And one animal they had was this little calf and they would go see him. The mom and daughter would go see him. And the daughter was a grown woman, too. And they would go talk to him through the fence and pet him. And one day they were there and the guy who owned the place said, you should say goodbye to him. We probably won't be here when you come next time. Oh, where's he going? Auction? For what? Probably dog food. That's what the guy said. And they were like, what? He wasn't raised like a veal calf. He's not going to be a veal calf. He'll probably be some kind of low grade beef product like dog food or something. And they were like astounded. How could you send him to that? He's been here for weeks. He's your little friend now, right? But the guy didn't see it that way. He just doesn't see the animals that way. So, well, they abused him a little bit. And finally, the guy was basically like, listen, I paid like $50 for him. If you want him, you can have him. Time I take him to auction, how much is it going to cost me in gas anyway? What am I going to make? Nothing. So they wanted him, but they had nowhere to take him. 
they started calling around sanctuaries and nobody was interested in him. And then one of the sanctuaries referred them to me. And so they called me and I was like, yeah, I'll take Mr. Big Shot Animal Rescuer, right? Everybody wants the animals I rescue. And worse comes to worse, he's small enough. He could go by the goats and he could be okay. So I go there and he's in this dog run inside a calf hutch, you know, one of the little plastic igloo looking things. And he's in it and he doesn't come outside. So I get out, I go in and I climb right in the thing with him. And he was laying down. He didn't get up. And I was like, that's odd. Because even though calves usually do like me, when you crowd them like that, they're like, I got to go, you know, but he wasn't. So I put my hands under him and I lift him up and he stood up for me and I crawled out and he followed me right outside. And I turned around and within seconds of looking at him, he's a Holstein. His mom was a dairy cow and he's black and white and they have massive bone structure. So they kind of have like knobby knees always. I'm looking him over and I'm patting him. I'm talking to him and I could see his front knees are huge. I mean, huge, bigger than normal. And I put my hands on them and they all warm and that's an infection. And I know that's bad. But at the time, to be honest with you, I was so new. I didn't know how bad it was. I just knew it was bad. So I put him in the truck and take him home, carrying them down the basement of my little house. And he and I slept the first night in the basement. The next night I carried him out, drove four hours up to Cornell Large Animal Hospital, where they knew me fairly well from transporting animals for other people and things like that. They were like, Mike, this is not good. So what do you mean? He got an infection. He didn't get enough colostrum. He didn't get any colostrum from his mom. So he basically had no immune system. He got an infection, his umbilicus, and it settled in his joints and was eating his joints away. And they were like, this is not good. And I remember the one doctor who a lot of sanctuary people didn't like because he was blunt. He said to me, you should cut your losses. This is going to be very expensive and he's not going to make it anyway. I don't know. I just had a feeling or I'm just naive or I just am stupid. I don't know. But I'm like, I think we give it a shot. So I give him my credit card number and I leave after that first night. And I go home and I would go every few days up there, four hours each way. And I would drive up and sit with him and I would read him books and I would play music on the iPad and he would put his head on me and just lay there. And I remember the first time I saw him after coming back, he didn't look anything like when I left him. I come back up and I didn't expect it. It turns out we don't have great blood flow to our joints and our bones, really. You know, if you want to target them, sometimes you got to go right at the source, right at the problem. In this case, the joint capsule. So they had cut his joints open and he had these wounds and these big wraps and drains and he had IVs in both sides of his neck and he was shaved and he was like gangly, skinny looking. He looked like a little alien, but he always looked happy. He always looked happy, always. He was bright, his head's around. He always never looked like he was suffering to me. So I would sit there and read him his books and stuff. And then I would drive home depressed every time because he wasn't getting any better. Weeks go by, nobody can take him. I called everywhere. Nobody who I would have take him would take him. They couldn't. And you don't realize it. It was the end of October. Now it's November and it's cold outside. It's getting colder and he's shaved. He's going to need a heated place to come from. He already had massive vet bills. They're going to be bigger and they're going to keep going. Couldn't blame anybody for not taking him, you know? So we stuck with him. I don't often tell this, but after him being there for maybe a month or so, one day I'm sitting on the floor in there with him. He's got his head on my lap. I'm reading him a book. And all of a sudden you could feel someone standing next to me outside the stall. And I look up and it's this guy that everybody didn't like who was blunt, who told me I should cut my losses. And he says, Mike, can I come in? I said, sure. Comes in. He sits on the floor across from me. He's a big, tall guy. He always wore cowboy boots, made him look even taller. And he sits down across from me. I said, what's going on? He says, I just wanted to thank you. I said, thank me? Yeah. 
says, you know, I work here. There's a lot of good doctors around here. It's a great hospital. Most of the animals we get in like this, farm animals, are from farms. They're commodities. They have a price on their head. So when they get anywhere near that price, even if the treatment seems to be going pretty well, the owners, the farmers, will often pull the animal, just send them off to auction and get the money and be done with it. He said, so we don't get to see a lot of them through like that. And then the other couples we get are a couple sanctuaries here and there, and they're spending other people's money. It's easy to spend other people's money. He said, I've never seen someone throw so much of their own money and time at what the world thinks is a $50 animal ever. And because of you doing that, I've got to spend a lot of time with him, with Jimmy. He didn't even say with him. He said with Jimmy. He is fantastic, he says to me. And I look up and the guy is crying. I mean, full bore crying. The guy that everybody thought was like heartless. He just was straightforward. And I appreciate that. So I never had an issue with the guy, but it was crazy to see him break down like that and to say that he didn't have to say any of that. I never felt he slighted me. I never thought he'd done me wrong in any way. So anyway, a couple of weeks later, I get a call from one of Jimmy's other doctors and she was fantastic. She says, Mike, remember I had taken a culture of Jimmy's infection when he came and finally, finally, I've made a cocktail that's killed it. We're going to give it to him now. She gives it to him. Now, all of a sudden, I'm in a panic. I don't know what to do. What am I going to do with this silly cow? Nobody wants him. And they're like, he can't exercise at all for another month or two months. I can't remember. So he needs a small stall, like eight feet by eight. And if you want, you can walk him on the halter five minutes a day. That's it. Bing, light goes on. I have an insulated rescue trailer. So I heated it and I put him down by the goats, which is at my work. So I could see him all the time. We had birthday parties in Jimmy's trailer. I slept over with him many times. We had New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve, and sometimes a dozen people in the trailer hanging out with Jimmy. And I would sleep with him and read him books and some of the best time of my life. Anyway, so he got better and better and better and better. And he was a daredevil. He was a wild man. Loved him so much. So I bought him his own building. He shared it then with the goats. But the place was never going to be ideal for him. Never was. He was going to be giant. He had started out with joint issues. I didn't know how they might affect him during his life. And this was kind of rocky. I mean, there was a nice little clear spot, but it was for goats. It wasn't perfect for cows. And it never would be big enough to have another cow for him to be friends with. So he was the motivation for this whole place. Jimmy needed a bigger piece of land where he could have friends of his own kind and flat ground to walk on without having to worry about hurting his ankle or all that stuff. And so the couple goats that I'd had before him have now all passed. The last boy just passed not that long ago. He was an old man. No joke, because every single animal here is alive because of Jimmy. They have a place to live because of Jimmy. If it wasn't for him, this wouldn't be here. True story. I never got to meet him in person, but yeah, just hearing about kids that would come and sitting in the heated trailer with the Christmas lights on and everybody just so joyous. It's not this sad thing that happens to most farm animals. They're more than farm animals. They can be such great companions. And I love when you talk about it because you really give them personalities. Well, not give them personalities, but you describe the personalities that they already have. And when you were talking about the turkeys earlier as well, you were mentioning that when they first get here, it takes some time to get acclimated. And there's been several animals that you've taken on, right, where it takes a while and it seems like they might not really like humans much or they're just shy or something like that. But once they realize that they're in such a safe environment, the humans aren't there to harm them and they're able to just kind of enjoy the sanctuary land, the personality starts coming out, right? Like Hannibal. Hannibal is a Black Angus steer. 
and he escaped slaughter at a little makeshift kind of slaughterhouse out on Long Island and ran for his life. He's a wily and smart kid, and he took me two months and two days to catch. He was alone out in the woods, fending for himself. He's about 1,500 pounds. We caught him, and he's here now. And just tonight, the changes in him. When he first got here, it didn't take him long. He ran and jumped the fence, like almost immediately. I guess he didn't want to be alone anymore. And luckily, he vetted out well, and everything was good. But he jumped the fence with a couple other animals, cleared it. 1,500 pounds, just heaved himself up and over the fence without hitting it, without breaking it, nothing. But if you would approach him, he would back away immediately. Now, tonight, literally just before this interview, I just got done giving him an 800-pound bale of hay, him and his couple buddies. And I go in there with the machine, with this big bale of hay on it. He doesn't back away, nothing. He comes right up to it now. He knows. He knows because of the other ones, the way they are. They don't shy away from us at all. They know they're safe here. And I think he feeds off of that. And he knows then he's safe. He watches their cues, especially Peanut. Peanut is a big, giant steer with horns, a good 750, 800 pounds bigger than Hannibal. He follows him around like he's his mentor. So if Peanut says it's okay, it must be okay. So he's right there eating at the feeder. I didn't even get away with the machine yet. And he's right there eating it. So that's pretty cool to see him warm up like that. One of the girls here today said, I think we're going to be able to just snip his tag off soon because he's becoming that friendly. I'm not sure he's going to let me rub him. He comes really close, but I'm not sure he's going to let me rub him yet. But sometimes it's good to be optimistic, I guess. And you just casually mentioned there that it took two months, two days to catch him. So what did that entail? Because I know you want to focus on the animals, but let's talk a little bit because this is so interesting. (laughs) What happened in those two months? The first day was just a free-for-all. Me and several Long Island animal rescue types just sitting around doing nothing. When I got to Paul, I thought the animal was wrangled. I was told he was caught already. So I went out there kind of ill-prepared for a real rescue. I went out there with the idea of basically a transport. The animal's caught. I'll get him from wherever they got him caught into the trailer and come back. But he wasn't. So basically, we sat around all day while the police did their thing. And the police were very proactive and they were doing their best to find him where he had been spotted and all this. But it was ridiculous. And I'm sitting there. I mean, you've met me. I'm not kind of a background player. I don't really work good that way, especially when it comes to large animals. I kind of step up. I'm trying not to step on anyone's toes and I'm just sitting back and just waiting and waiting and waiting. Plus, I was ill prepared. Like I said, I didn't have stuff with me for a rescue like that. But we learned that night. Everybody's like, oh, he's going to leave. He's this and that. And I'm looking at the land. I'm thinking, I don't know about that. But anyway, a friend of mine, Kevin, he used to work at another sanctuary years ago. He heard about it. And I didn't realize he lived on Long Island. So we're standing out in the front off the property in the road. There's media everywhere. Everybody's happy to talk to all the news and all this. Meanwhile, there's nothing to say to them. We didn't do anything. We're sitting around with a bunch of dopes looking silly. All of a sudden, this guy comes walking out from the other side of the property through the woods and comes out, no flashlight, and he's looking around. And then all of a sudden, he sees me and he comes over and he goes, thank God. He goes, this is going to be a nightmare. Thank God, Mike. I'm glad to see you here. I said, what's going on, Kev? He goes, I just saw him. I said, you did? He goes, yeah. I said, where? Right there. So we tell everybody and everybody panics and decides to rush onto the property. And I'm like, this is not the right thing to do because I know we're not going to catch him in five minutes in the dark. So we kind of need permission so we can do it the right way, you know, but everybody rushes in there and they spotted him. And then after we got permission, I went in and he was spotted and then he disappeared in the woods. And so 
he's gone in the woods. And everybody is wondering what to do. Even I am, because we're surrounded by really dense population and highways and things like that. But we're in this little stand of woods that's real woods. And my heart is just saying, the only way to catch them is to catch them. We're not going to push them into anywhere. It's not going to go well. We're not really going to tranquilize them. Because if he drops, he's going to drop maybe in the woods. It's not going to go so well. You know, we're not going to get him out. How are you going to get him out without hurt? So there was people who, from the beginning, wanted to help and did help. There were some organizations out there that were wanting to be helpful and tried to be helpful. But to be honest with you, it's not like we can get 50 people and just corral them. You know, and people are like, we'll send cowboys in or this and that. He was too big to be roped with one horse. He would pull one horse over. According to my, hey, guys who have been cowboys their whole lives, I told them how big he was. And they're like, that's no good, Mike. You know, you can't do that with one horse. And I know how dense the woods are. You're not going to get a horse on one side, then a rope, then the animal, then more rope. There's no width for it. He's going to wrap somebody around a tree and pull a horse in and hurt somebody or hurt himself. And I'm like, this isn't going to go well. We just need to lure him out. So I put out a call for some help. I needed equipment. I was hoping for a portable horse corral. So I put in a call for help on Facebook. In 10 minutes, I had one. This woman and her daughter just loaned me one. It was awesome. So I got that and we put that up out there. It never would have held them. Once I really got a good look at them, it never would have held them. So then I'm like, what are we going to do? So I ordered a piece of equipment that I'd been meaning to get anyway. It's called a headlock feeder wagon. And it's this big, giant wagon, like feeder, very expensive. And farmers use them to feed the animals. You move it around and it's got head gates headlocks. So when the animal puts their head in, if they put it in far enough, it can catch them if you want it to. But they usually leave it open. The animals get used to it. When they want to give them a shot, they trip it. It holds the animal. You give them a shot, let them out. It's over. So I needed one. I couldn't find one. There was none to borrow on Long Island. I don't know. There's like a shortage of stuff. So I called the manufacturer and they had one partially built and they finished it and painted it and brought it here to New Jersey for me. They wouldn't bring it out to Long Island. So I had to come back here and put it up on a trailer. It weighs like a ton and put it up out there. And so we had it. And we had also cameras in the woods. I had cameras in the woods. Eddie had cameras in the woods. Joe was out there setting up the cameras. So it was a joint effort. It was cool, but we had cameras everywhere and I would watch him. And I would sit there every night, first with a rope, waiting for him to go in the corral before we had the feeder, trying to pull the rope. And we did that once. He blasted right out of it. And then I made it stronger, but we never got the opportunity to use it again. But anyway, I put cameras in the feeder and I'd watch him right up. He'd just nibble from the edge. He would never put his head in it. You little bastard. And he had all goodies there. There was this field of mugwort right there. And he loved it. They loved that. So he wasn't as enticed by my goodies as he would have been had he been in a less good environment. And he had fresh water out there. He had streams. He had plenty of stuff to eat. But as the season started to wane a little bit, that mugwort becomes like woody. And then the other stuff, the alfalfa and the goodies that I was giving them, they look better. So I actually went home and had Eddie and Karen out there and the, the landowners who would, if I needed them to, they would put hay in there or straw or whatever. My trailer's out there full of stuff. And it was awesome. And they would go there and do that for me. And I'd watch them on video so I could be here for a little bit, you know, doing stuff that I was supposed to be doing. And as soon as that stuff started to get a little woody, a little dried up, he put his head in farther and then farther. And then I could see the bars go straight up. And I'm like, if I had tripped that right now, I'd have them. So after I saw him consistently do that, like four or five days straight, I got a couple of my buddies. And I said, all right, we're going to go catch him tonight. And that was it. That's what we did. We went out there, fluffed up all the stuff, new goodies in there for him, watched him for an hour or two, 
And that's where I lied, right? Because people were under the impression that we never saw him in all that time. We didn't know where he was, but that wasn't true. I saw him almost every night. I have a couple thousand pictures of him. I knew where he was. I knew where he slept. We were trying to develop a real sense of all his patterns that he was doing. And also, to be honest with you, to keep the media circus away and just the circus environment, period, because you're not going to get an animal who's scared to death of humans to come in with human voices all hours of the night. So I lied. But it was just because I wanted to catch him and be done with it. You know, we caught him in that trap, fenced him in with a couple of fence panels. He was throwing that thing around. That thing weighs like 2000 pounds. He was throwing it around. We had to tie it to the portable corral to keep him from throwing it. And then we made like a chute with two corral panels. And then I backed my trailer right into it. We tied them to that. And then my buddy Dave hopped up in the feeder. Can't get hurt being in the feeder. Where his head was, we put a halter on him, fed it back through, tied it to my winch cable. Just gave him a little pull, let him loose, pulled him right in the trailer. Done. Done. He tried to kick me, little bastard. <laughs> I had to give him a shot. All right, so I go to give him a shot. I give him a shot, and he kicked the trailer so hard. I mean, cows always kick. They'll kick to their side. It's slow motion a lot of times. It's more like a warning. Not this boy. He kicks like a horse, man. He really kicks. Scared the heck out of me, and he bent the needle. And now I got to go in with him. Now I can't get him through the window anymore. And now I got to go in with him to give him the shot. So I go in there, scared to death. I threw some flakes of hay on his back to throw him off. So he's like, what the heck is that? While he was, what the heck is that? I gave him the needle. Got him. Took him, brought him home, had the vet check him, all that. And then we put him out in an isolation area and he jumped the fence. Little shit. Yeah. Oh, what a story. It was long, you know? Yeah. I mean, a lot of time and effort went into that and a lot of people involved, a lot of equipment involved, not to mention, you know, you said in the beginning, there's law enforcement and everyone going after it. The media is there. The journalists are trying to get the story. So what would you say to a lot of people who are listening to this are already vegan? So they get it, right? They care about the animals. They think this is amazing. But your average person might say, what's the point? You know, what's the point for one cow? What's the point of spending all that time doing that? What fuels you to do this type of work? Initially, it comes from the idea of just, you know, right and wrong. I've never liked the idea of bullies. I used to buy into all this stuff. I grew up eating and drinking all these animal products and said, you know, the standard American diet. That was me. I didn't know any better. I didn't really think about it. I didn't have to kill anyone. When I was younger, even if I did have to kill anyone, I would have thought, you're supposed to. It's what they're here for. And then you realize that's a bunch of bullshit. Of course, they're not here for us. I mean, we breed them into existence, which in its own makes it 10 times worse even. Imagine the idea of breeding someone into life. And if it's a male, generations before knowing what day that animal would die, basically, or what week, roughly. Like imagine the idea of you're a dairy cow and you're one day old female dairy calf, right? A female. In this system, the way things work right now, they could tell you the day that animal's born, roughly the month or the week for sure, that they're going to impregnate that animal if it's a dairy animal. And then from that, you can extrapolate the idea of if she has a girl, when she's going to get impregnated. And then when she has a baby, if that's a male, they can tell you basically to the day, what day that animal is going to die. How wrong is that? How crazy is it that that's how simple it is? It's just time period, right? And sex and production, right? So maybe this animal who's a girl who might have been used for five or six years 
unless there's something wrong with her, if she has a physical ailment and can't produce, they can tell you when she's going to be done, basically, unless it's shortened by something else. I mean, there's someone, if you don't see that, and people are so funny, you know, they have dogs, they have cats, they love the hell out of them. And they honestly do. They could tell you all their cat's little traits or their dog's little traits, just like I was telling you about these other kids, right? They can tell you them. The idea that a dog or a human is that much different than these animals, the only difference is our relationship with them, right? It's the way we want to see them or the lot in life we relegate them to. If you can ask Freddie, Freddie's big beef breed, Hereford, that I rescued who escaped the slaughterhouse, right? He's awesome. He's a big kid, couple thousand pounds. You ask Freddie, hey, Fred. Is it your purpose in life to be killed and eaten? You know what Freddie would say? Fuck you. That's what he would say. He's not going to go, yeah, I think you should just cut my throat and eat me. You're so much more superior than me. The world needs you so much more than me. He's not going to say that at all. He's going to say, you come at me with your knife and I'll smash your guts out. That's what he's going to say. And that's what he should say. I'm just as guilty as anyone else. I lived a fair amount of my life just thinking, probably not thinking, honestly. So I'm guilty too, but there's no good argument for what we do to these animals. There just isn't. And the idea of like livelihood, it's not a fair thing. It's not okay to take hundreds and thousands of lives because you want a television. That's not those animals' fault. I get it. I'm not trying to be down on farmers that haven't seen it that way yet. I've talked to many farmers and a lot of them, the idea is this is hard work what they do. And it's thankless. You know, you don't make billions of dollars and they work hard and they do their thing and they feel they're noble. It's a noble task. Nobody else wants to do this. Nobody wants to work this hard or this many hours just to feed people. But it's my legacy. My family did. My family before and all that. You just don't see it. It's only a thing because we relied on those people. And that's me too. So when we're busy hating on these farmers and stuff like that, we have to remember they fed us our whole lives. They did. So now, now it's time for them to stop. I hate to say it. I just bought a $7 quart of Elmhurst Dairy Vegan Eggnog. That's one of the few success stories where they went from being a dairy farm to now no animal stuff. And they're doing well. So even though maybe it's my favorite, maybe it isn't, and it's expensive, I see it, I buy it because it supports them doing what they're doing. And maybe other animal farmers will see they don't have to do these things to make a living, to not lose their family farm or stuff like that. And I think that's a thing, too. I think that, unfortunately, a lot of activists, it's easy to talk when you're not the one having to do, or when you're not the one who might lose their house or their farm or whatever. So I think if we see places that are trying to do that kind of thing, we should support them. We should buy the product so they don't have to fail and then nobody else will try. If they make it, others will try and make it. So sometimes we need to sacrifice other than just going to the vegan restaurant to get our favorite thing every time and pretend that's activism. Maybe we need to support some of these places that weren't vegan and that are going that way and it will help more animals in a longer lasting kind of way. Yeah, I mean, it's complicated with the farm situation because right now it is the case where they kind of just have to take that leap and just kind of hope for the best. There's not too much out there supporting them other than individuals like yourself that are willing to go there and pay for it. Whereas something like meat and dairy farming, yeah, they're not making a ton of money, but it is subsidized by the government. So there is some sort of security in that, not to mention the tradition, as you mentioned, like it's what my family has done for so long. It's everything that I know, and it's supported by the people that are around and you feel like you're just doing a service to everyone. And they are. But at the same time, it's this complicated thing because it's messing up our health. 
It's messing up the ecosystem and the environment, and it's hurting the animals. We just know better now. When you learn better, you should try and do better. And that's all there is to it. You know, back in the day, they say, I remember being in school. They gave you milk all the time. It was on the food pyramid and all that. You needed it for strong teeth and bones and all that. And now we know that's not exactly true. And we should learn from it and do better. The point is, if we can get people to transition from like animal farming to plant-based stuff, whether it be just vegetable farming or making these plant-based products and selling them out to the world, I think we should support them when they go for it. Instead of just patting them on the back or instead of ignoring them, I think we should say, well, that's incredible. You just put everything on the line to try something different. That's awesome. I think we should support that. Yeah. I mean, and it's a full effort, right? There's so many facets to it. So we need people like yourself that know how to handle the animals because where are the animals going to go when the dairy farms shut down? And how do we take care of them like as an actual respected animal, not just as a standard farm animal that's really exploited and abused most of the time. And then we need to have from a political standpoint, the $38 billion that are going to meet in dairy every year, imagine that being reallocated towards produce farming and then operations like your own, like the animal rescues and things to restore the agriculture. A lot of this land is really messed up from having the meat and dairy farming on it. So it's hard to grow vegetables and stuff there. Yeah. And the, all the forest land that's being lost and all that stuff, you know, because of this. And other than, I don't know, I guess taste, force of habit, nothing good comes from it. It just doesn't. They mow down the rainforest to grow stuff to feed animals instead of the 40,000 humans that are starving to death on the planet every day. Instead, we're doing like the most inefficient things we can with our resources, right? So here we have water, we have fresh water, we have land to grow stuff, and we are instead impregnating animals, feeding this stuff to these animals, then killing those animals and eating them. And for the jackasses who always want to say, oh, you know, plants have feelings too. Like that's really the hill they want to die on, right? Okay, let's say they do. Okay, we are going to try and survive. We are. And plants have not evolved to the point to try and run away from us yet. So there's that. They aren't Literally screaming. Literally rooted in the ground. Really rooted in the ground. And let's say you love plants. Let's say, honest to God, that's really what you think. Okay. When you're talking about beef, believe the number is 16 times. It takes 16 pounds of plant protein to produce one pound of beef protein. So if you really cared about plants, just eat them directly. You'd eat a lot less of them. And it's just, there's no argument there. Even if there was an argument, there's no good reason for doing what we do. There just isn't. And I'm 55 years old now, unfortunately. And in all my life, if all this comes so naturally, I've never seen anyone where the mom or the dad says on the weekend, hey, it's a beautiful Saturday today. Let's take the kids to the slaughterhouse. Nobody says that. But they say, let's go apple picking. It doesn't come that natural to us to do the things we do. It just doesn't. Yeah, those slaughterhouses, they don't have windows. They don't have advertisements. Do you know the names? I mean, you might, but does anybody listening to this know the name of a local slaughterhouse or where it's located? These things are hidden away from us for a reason. We don't want to know. It's so blind. When you're a child, you would never choose to do this if you knew the truth about it. And it's so much harder for an adult to switch over from eating meat to not eating meat to transitioning to plant-based because you're removing decades and decades of social conditioning of things that you were told by people that you trust, by the news, by the media, by your parents, by your friends, by nutritionists and doctors. And it doesn't go away right away either. I know you've been eating without animals for a while now, right? 
don't tell me there aren't people in your life that try and make fun of you or try and get you to eat animal stuff or something. It doesn't go away the second you make the decision either. For some people, it's hard. Some people make a decision and it's hard for them to stick to it because of their peer pressure and because of how they grew up or because they're too young. They don't even buy their own food or no one else is going to. Your husband won't, your wife won't, whatever. Your kids won't do it. For me, it was easy. It was like a light switch. I didn't have to fight. It was just easy. Just switched. All of a sudden, I no longer saw animals as food. So that was easy for me. I try to do that to people. I try to see what means something to them and help them make that change by flipping the switch. So they're not fighting their willpower every day. For some people, they just come about it from an idea of, this is not right. And then they're just fighting their urges every day. It's very hard when it's all on your willpower, when you really want this or you really want that, but you in your head, you can't have it. It's hard. I don't have that. I don't crave anything. Basically from day one, it was done. And I was fortunate. It made it easy for me. If you can find that connection for other people and help them flip the switch, in my head, I think it's kind of wrong and they're just going on willpower every day. It's hard to do that. It really is. So if you can make it easier, so they don't see it as food anymore, better. Yeah. And finding community. It could be something like visiting an animal sanctuary, which I got to meet you and everybody at the sanctuary, all the animals on a volunteer day that was organized by our friend Sharice. Shout out to her (laughs) who runs vegan in New Jersey and has a meetup group. So she arranged for us to go there for a volunteer day. Fast forward. (laughs) This was back in April, 2021 this year. I started volunteering and now I'm scheduling some volunteer days myself because I just love it so much. It's such an easy exchange just for scooping some poop and (laughs) petting some animals, filling some buckets with feed and whatever other little tasks need to be done. I get to be around a bunch of amazing animals and pick up on their beautiful energy. And it just, the energy you feel when you step onto the sanctuary grounds, there's a reason they call it a sanctuary. It's very similar to when you walk into a yoga class or something like that. It's just so much peace and love and joy that's there. There's just an absence of any type of violence or hate. And you've experienced going to slaughterhouses and going to the auctions and all these places where it is very violent and hateful and they just treat the animals like crap. Can you speak a little bit to the difference in the energy when you go to places like that versus what it's like at the sanctuary? So auctions, the animals are just a commodity. That's all there is to it. They're just a commodity. Some of the people are bad people. Some of them are just there, what they think is doing their job, you know? But the animals are treated as nothing. And they're all scared and they're all, it's bad. The slaughterhouse is different. The slaughterhouse is a different kind of fear. It's often quiet. I don't know why the auction house, the animals are a lot of times loud, maybe because the gates and the straw and kind of reminds them a little bit of a farm or whatever. But in the slaughterhouse, they're often quiet. It's a different feeling. They're just petrified with fear. It's funny that people act like they're not, you know. But there's no question they are. I always said since the beginning, because of the way our society is set up and pure luck, I guess I'm kind of the top of the food chain in the way that I'm a man and a white man in the United States. I'm afforded certain things. I don't worry about the same things as other people have to. And I'm a critter. Look at me. I'm not walking around a $1,000 suit. I don't look like if you rob me, I'm an easy victim, I don't think. I don't care where I am. I walk in any neighborhood. So that leaves me as far removed from my natural senses as you could be, right? I don't rely on my sense of smell 
to know if there's a threat coming. I don't rely on my hearing or my fantastic eyesight or my tremendous speed like these animals do. I don't have to. Who's going to mess with me? I don't have to, right? I can call the police. I got my cell phone. I just don't look like an easy target. These animals, all the animals that we eat are prey animals. They make their living on knowing when to run, when there's fear, when there's danger. Their senses are so much more heightened than mine. You can hear for miles. They can smell for miles. They're looking this way. Their ears are listening that way. There might be a hundred of them in a herd. And each one is part of a cohesive flock or herd. One gets panicked, they know when to run. Their sense of smell is so good. They can sense we may give off something when we're about to do something of bad intent. Like real fighters know when your eyes start twitching, when you look this way, when you look that way, uh uh-oh, it's about to be on. The animals pay attention like that. The regular Joe, like me, doesn't. So when I go in the slaughterhouse, being so far removed from my senses, somehow I know what's going on, don't I? You walk in there, the hair on your arm stands up. I'm telling you straight out. The electricity, it feels like electricity. It's fear and it's palpable. And the smell, you don't smell it anywhere else. So if I can feel that, and I know, imagine what somebody who makes their living does. Why do you think these animals run? They know. They know what's going on. It's a different game. It's a smell that some of those animals have been to the slaughterhouse, give off. And sometimes it's from the transport trucks. And it's not manure and it's not urine. I know what it smells like, urine and manure. You know, we have animals here like crazy. There's this smell that they have. To me, it comes from fear. They must excrete something some kind of oil or something. And the second I smell it, I can tell you that animal has been in what they believe to be a near-death situation where they're so scared that this smell comes out. I don't know what it is. And then you get them, if you're lucky enough to save one here and there, and you bring them here. And at first, most of them are skittish. And then you just see it wear away, starts going away. And it's different. It's not like if you took one of these animals and brought them back to a farm. When they're here for a while, these animals get to be someone They would never be anywhere else. The arrogance, the bravery, the comfort that they have, it's the best. Unfortunately, sometimes it's a pain in the butt, right? You want to get something done to one of these animals and you need them to hold still or get them in a thing so we can hold them with the vet. What are you going to do? Yell at them? They know we're not going to do anything. Whereas a farmer just goes, and they're like, boom, and they run away and they do what you want them to do quick. Sometimes it's almost a detriment, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. I love when I pull up the machine. Yesterday, I was using an excavator. And I'm putting stone inside one of the buildings for the donkeys. And the machine, I'm bucketing it in. Hazel, little 21-year-old donkey, she just walks right over. She won't move. She will not move. I put the bucket right through to it. She just stands right there. She knows our dad won't hurt her. She knows it. I like that. I love that you call yourself dad. (laughs) It's so sweet. But yeah, I mean, the palpable fear. You've heard that before, that you can smell fear. And with what you're describing, it's like the animals can also smell perpetrators. They can smell aggression. They can smell this inevitable, painful death that they're about to undergo. And that's terrifying. They smell blood. And I don't think anybody will ever truly understand that unless they go to a slaughterhouse or even to, I guess, a farm that's, you know, they say they're humanely raised or local or organic or whatever bullshit terms they like to use to make you feel better about what you're eating. Sorry, not sorry. But I feel like you can get that same sort of feeling there as well. There's no escaping that fear. The animals are smart. They know what you're doing. And if you don't believe that part, I can believe it, even though I haven't been in that experience, because I've been to the sanctuary and I see what the opposite of that is. 
I see the complete relaxation. Like you said, the complete lack of fear. Like they know you're not going to hit them. <laughs> you know, you're not going to poke them with the electric prong. <laughs> it could be really hard to move them around. Sometimes they just, get in your way and you, you have to shove them. <laughs> sometimes I have to resort to, I bottle fed you, you little bastard. <laughs> it's nice. That's the one great thing about the sanctuary. People are always like, well, how are they doing? Are they friendly yet? Are they this and that? Some animals are never going to be friendly to us. And that's what a sanctuary is, isn't it? Otherwise, it's just pets. It's a petting zoo. We have Calvin. And Calvin is a Jersey steer. And I had him since he was two days old. Calvin will smash you. He'll kill you. He's not mean. He's not going to kill you because he's mean. He's going to kill you because he loves to wrestle and he loves to play. And he doesn't understand that he's so much stronger than you. He doesn't quite get what could happen. And people are like, doesn't that make you crazy? No, it makes me happy. Like he's allowed to be who he is. Somewhere else, maybe he has to conform. He doesn't have to. He's not here to be my buddy. I didn't save his life for him to be my pet. He's here to have a good life. And that's all I care about. I love him. I love him to death. That's why we take some of the violent animals that seem to be unwanted by others. Because I don't care. I don't care if they're not good on the tour. I don't care if a four-year-old human can't pet the animal. That's not why they're here. We have plenty of kids for that who are friendly and love the people, not just will tolerate the people, but love the attention from humans. That's their role. Let them do that. The ones who don't want to, they don't have to. I like that. It makes me happy that we've been able to set it up that way and to stick to it. Yeah, you're taking in animals that are considered difficult. And also when you were telling me about one of the visits to one of these farms, the farmer asked, which one do you want? You said, I don't care. Just give me anybody you want to get rid of. And it was an aha moment for me because we forget how biased we are and how judgmental we are. And when it comes to animals, when it comes to things like babies, for instance, it sounds harsh, but it's true. You value something that looks cute and is aesthetically pleasing to you over something that you think is ugly or not cute or not as well behaved or something that has a deformity or a disability or something like that. We're talking animals and humans here. Everyone has attractions to certain types of whatever it is, not babies. To me, they all look like old men. But when it comes to animals, we all have our little biases and, and humans and whatever it is. We all have our little bias. So I try to take mine out of it and just say, whoever you want to let go, I'll take them. And it's usually the sickest one or the skinniest one or the smallest one or the biggest pain in the butt. And I don't care. I love them. They're all individuals. And I'm good with it. I'll take anyone. I don't care if they're the cutest one. I guess that's my coward's way of saying, I don't want to be the one who chooses who lives and doesn't. That's not my role in life. My role is if there's someone who can be saved and you can help, then try and save them. Not to pick and choose. I wouldn't want somebody doing that to me. I wouldn't want to be there in a cage and somebody says, what about this one? No, I don't like one with a beard. No, thanks. And we all have it. It's not like I don't have it. I just don't let it win. And that's a life lesson that goes even beyond this sanctuary talk, right? That makes me think inward as well. Like what have I gotten as, you know, white female in America and what privileges do I get from that? And then looking over at someone, for instance, like Malala, who got acid thrown on her face. And there's people out there that they might not look attractive at first glance, like a veteran that had an IED explode in his face or something like that. And your first instinct is that it's hard to look at. Like, I don't want to look at this person. And then you're like, well, shit, that doesn't mean they don't have anything valuable to say. That doesn't mean they're any less valuable or worth listening to than I am or anybody else's. And it just makes you confront inside the judgmental, biased, selfish parts of ourselves. And it's very hard. 
that's part of veganism to me, primarily, you know, the animals, but it helps you also expand your worldview on what else am I closing my eyes to that I'm not valuing one thing over the other. For me, that's one of the very few things about getting older. Well, hopefully you start to realize that all that superficial stuff, it's nothing. It's very hard when people are congratulated on being whatever it is. Look at her. She's five foot 10, blue eyes and blonde hair. She may be a wonderful person, but she had nothing to do with that. I could have easily been born into the body of a cow and then suffered what a poor cow has to suffer. Meanwhile, inside being whatever spirit I am, I'm still me whatever it is, you know what I mean? Whatever it is that makes us us, because we know it's not our hair. We know it's not our skin color. We know it's not our height. It's none of that stuff. Whatever we are is in there somewhere. I don't know how it lands where it lands. I'm lucky enough to be born here in the United States and have a fortunate life that way. I could have just been something else. I could have been born into some war-torn country, into a group of people who's oppressed and treated poorly, and I would have had nothing to do with it. Inside, I might have still been exactly who I am now, or a chicken, or a cow, or a pig. The sooner you can realize that, the easier it is to be nicer to others. When you realize, like I said, whatever benefits I may or may have not gotten because of being born where I was, when I was, I had nothing to do with it. I'm not to be congratulated for it. It doesn't make me any better or any worse than anyone else. It's what you do or who you are inside. So when you realize that, all you have to do is look in some of these animals and you see somebody looking out who feels exactly the same way. I didn't do anything, man. I don't know why they're treating me this way. I'm a good guy. I didn't do anything. Leave me alone. Just let me live. I just want to go out in the grass. Quicker you learn that, better off you are. Yeah, and like you said, they're not here for our entertainment. They're not here to be cute for tours. That's great if they are, but they don't have a job. They just are. And like you said, that's what it means to respect them is to allow them to have their own personality. Not all humans are pleasant. Some humans are jerks too. They're allowed to be that. That's their right is to be them. People seem to forget what we get from these animals. It's a funny thing. Since I started this, if I had a dollar for every time somebody said, thank you for helping those animals or something, we'd never have to fundraise. That's how many times people have said it to us. I'm not kidding. Maybe sometimes it's because I do some higher profile rescues or some things that seem to be out of the ordinary or something. Trust me on this one. Jimmy was with me for about five years. He died young. He did more in those five years for his kind than I could do for my kind if I lived to be 100 years old. And he made me laugh so often that he was my buddy. I mean, I know it sounds crazy. People are like, he was, like, yeah. he was my friend. He was my son. He was crazy. He was a maniac. And he was arrogant. He would always do something out of the blue that would have me cracking up. Always. And in that, he has given to me. Maybe Jimmy saved me. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I think that's a lovely place for us to wrap up here as well with the thought of Jimmy in mind and the laughter that he brought and the fact that because of him, there's this beautiful place out in North Jersey, <laughs> not that far from New yes. York, you guys. So give it a visit and you can go there. You can volunteer, be open for tours again soon, and you can donate. You can share the stuff on social media, whatever you do, you know, it's going to help. If you're a meat eater, you can come here and bounce your theories off me. I'll take that. I like that. I hope you see things.
yeah, you, you are so much fun to talk to and be around, whether it's on the grounds or even here on this interview. And I really appreciate your time. And is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know today? I mean, go vegan. I mean, if you're not, there's no downside. The only negative things I've ever really heard a vegan ever say, they wish they wouldn't started earlier. And now it's so easy. It's just so easy. I don't want to be preachy, but trust me, it'll be better for you. It'll be better for your kids, your grandkids, their kids, the environment, the animals, your soul, just everything. There's no negative to it. None. Thanks for coming out and volunteering. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for having me on here. It was fun. Yeah. Thank you again. And you have to let me say it, but thank you for all you do for the animals, because I do want to thank you for that. And it's Thanksgiving and I'm allowed to say it. <laughs> and you do do a lot. You spend, you know, all day, every day working on that for years. So thank you from the bottom of my heart and for all the vegan friends across the world, I'm sure they share the sentiment. So how can people stay in touch with you on social media? Skylands Animal Sanctuary on Facebook. And I think it's just Skylands underscore sanctuary on Instagram. I'm kind of old fashioned. I guess Facebook's old fashioned now. So if you want to see the fun videos and the rescues and the nice stories and the Facebook is really the best skylandsanctuary.org or believe it or not, friendsnotfood.com and .org, any of them, put them in there and you'll come to my website. The fun stuff is mostly on Facebook, honestly. Call, volunteer, whatever you want to do. We're very laid back. Yeah. So thank you, my friend and happy Thanksgiving to you and all the workers and volunteers and all the animals at Skylands. Happy Tofurky day. <laughs> yes. Eat your tofurky. Right. There you go. Thank you for tuning in to the Vegan Dharma podcast. Keep in touch. Add me on Facebook and Instagram, Vegan Dharma Coach. If you're interested in one-on-one -on -one coaching to find your soul's purpose, send me a DM. Remember, you are more than this physical body, and we are meant to embody our soul's purpose. The world needs you just as you are. I will see you on the next episode of the Vegan Dharma Podcast.